0: There are a few surprising characters in the history of religion and philosophy, charismatic individuals who successfully break new ground and capture our imagination. And in the medieval Islamic world, I can think of few figures as unique and intriguing as Shihabuddin Suravardi. Known also as Sheikh al-Ashraq, or the Master of Illumination, Suhrawardi created an entirely new school of philosophy which became known as illuminationism and which would have a huge influence and impact on the Eastern Islamic intellectual tradition. His thought combined the teachings of Islam Plato, Hermeticism, Zoroastrianism among many others to create a unique and poetic form of mystical philosophy. So who was this man and what are the main features of his thought? Shihabuddin Abu al-Futuh, Yahya ibn Habash ibn Amirak, Suravardi was a Persian Muslim mystic and philosopher who lived in the 12th century. Now there are a few different Suravardis in Islamic history, among them the famous Sufi Abu Najib Suhrawardi, famous as the founding figure of the major Suhrawardi Sufi order, but our Suravardi today is the illuminationist philosopher slash mystic, otherwise known as Sheikh al-Shraq or Sheikh al-Maqtul, meaning the murdered master, a point we will return to. He was born in the village of Suravard in what is today northwestern Iran, probably in the year 1154. Tradition tells us that he studied under some significant teachers in Maragha, and at a young age he seems to have been taught philosophy and deeply immersed himself in the philosophy of Ibn Sina or Avicenna in particular, sometimes called the peripatetic school, in other words the followers of Aristotle but it also seems clear that he became deeply engaged in Sufism or mysticism as both of these feature greatly into his illuminationist thought. Suravardi then traveled. It seems that he wandered around in Syria and Anatolia in his 20s as a poor wise man while he developed his mystical and philosophical ideas. At some point he distanced himself very clearly from the peripatetic philosophy of Ibn Sina and Aristotle, instead choosing to develop a teaching of his own, which was a lot more influenced by Plato, Platonism, and what he considered to be some of the ancient forgotten wisdoms like Hermeticism. This, he felt, fit much better with his mystical inclinations and experiences, and he could now work them together into a kind of synthesis. Indeed, Suravaldi himself tells us that he had a dream where Aristotle appeared to him and explained that the key to knowledge is self-consciousness, before praising Plato to the skies and stating that the only Muslim thinkers who had reached the level of Plato were Sufis like Bastami and Sahla Tustari. This, along with an intense mystical experience where Suravardi apprehended the Platonic world of forms, led to his shift towards Platonism and a rejection of the Aristotelian teachings so favoured by the school of Ibn Sina. Suravardi seems to have made a name for himself pretty early on, as his perhaps natural, it appears or seems that he was actually quite famous already as a Sufi ascetic and mystic, but he really enters the historical record in 1183 when he comes to Aleppo in Syria. As you have probably already gathered, Suravadi was quite the character, at once a greatly learned philosopher and also a wandering mystic. Indeed, the scholar John Walbridge tells the story thus, quote It is said that he entered the city, that is Aleppo, in clothes so shabby that he was mistaken for a donkey driver. He took up residence in a madrasa where the director quickly realized that he was a man of learning and tactfully sent his young son with a gift of decent clothes. Suravardi brought out a large gem and told the boy to go to the market and have it priced. The boy came back and reported that the prince governor, a teenage son of Saladin, had bid 30,000 dirhams for it. Suryavadi then smashed the gem with a rock, telling the boy that he could have had better clothes had he wished. Suryavadi was clearly a very charismatic individual, deeply devoted to a kind of renunciant lifestyle. There are also stories told of how one day he would wear very shabby clothes, as in this account, but the next day he would wear really beautiful adorned clothes, like of a king almost, in order to not... Even get attached to looking like a renunciant, right? So, to have renunciant or ascetic clothes in itself could become a kind of uh, ego related attachment. And so, he would vary his clothing in order to not get attached to that sort of image, also. He also seemed to have been quite famous for his knowledge of the occult sciences. Soon, he had become quite close with the prince governor, who was the son of the famous Salah known more widely as Saladin. Indeed, Saladin had just recently conquered the city of Aleppo and was at the height of his power, having dethroned the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt, which was an Ismaili Shiite dynasty that had ruled for many centuries prior. And as Saladin's teenage son, al-Malik al-Zahir, served as a kind of governor in Aleppo at the time, he soon ran into the eccentric Suhavardi and quickly became his devoted disciple. What happens next isn't entirely clear, So Havardi managed to gather a devoted group of followers in Aleppo with whom he shared his mystical practices and philosophical ideas, but he also made some of the establishment and religious scholars uneasy, partly because of his ideas, but also because he started becoming so popular and had a direct connection to political power through being close with the son of Saladin. He was also a writer throughout his life and composed several mystical and philosophical works. He wrote mystical treatises known as the Allegories, but also books dedicated to peripatetic philosophy. Indeed, even though he very clearly distanced himself from many of Ibn Sina's ideas, he still relied on them to a very large degree in his own thought. These philosophical works of Vardis include Al-Talwihat, the Intimations, al Muqawamat opposites and the large al-mashari wa al-mutarahat paths and havens but by far his most major work the one that represents the most complete exposition of his unique ideas was written in 1186 and is known as the Hekmet al-ishraq or the philosophy of illumination this is one of the most important and unique works in the history of the Islamic world and serves as the basis for Suravardi's great fame and popularity. But not long after this, he was getting a bit too much attention. Saladin himself was becoming very uneasy about Suravardi and his influence over his son. Much like Plato, Suravardi seemed to uphold the ideal of a kind of philosopher king, and some of his ideas were quite esoteric. Now, one must remember here that this was a very uneasy time in the Middle East, and for Saladin in particular. Not only did he deal very famously with the Christian Crusades, but he had also fought the Fatimid Caliphate very shortly previously. Presenting himself as a champion of Sunni Islam, Saladin was very uneasy about anything related to or that seemed similar to the esoteric Ismaili ideas that the Fatimids had stood for during the previous centuries. This, coupled with the fact that Suravardi, with all of these ideas, seemed to hold great influence over his son, led to Saladin taking quite harsh measures. Probably in 1191, Saladin ordered to have Suravardi executed. And so it was. Ever since, Suravardi has also been known as Sheikh al-Maqtul, or the Murdered Master, His followers dispersed, but his writings survived and would continue to be influential. He was the master of illumination, after all, and his philosophy of illumination made quite an impact on a lot of people. It started a whole new movement of mystical philosophy that would influence later thinkers like Mir Damad, Mullah Sadra, and all the way to people like Ayatollah Khomeini. But what is this philosophy of illumination? What did Suravardi teach? Well, to answer this question, we have to dive into that most important of his works, which is called The Philosophy of Illumination, or the Hikmat al ishraq in Arabic. This is, in essence, a philosophical text. It is structured and written like a classic work of philosophy, but it is also very careful to incorporate mysticism as an essential key to knowledge, as we will see. The book also continues Suravardi's common mission to uh, refute or to critique a lot of the ideas held by Ibn Sina and the other uh, peripatetic philosophers, while at the same time of course employing and using a lot of their ideas for his own arguments, but nonetheless the work features a lot of critique and counter-arguments to those of Ibn Sina and his school. The treatise is divided into two primary parts. The first is essentially a work of logic. It lays down the foundations of logical deduction as understood in the philosophy of the time, while also criticizing a number of commonly held views of the peripatetics by introducing illuminationist perspectives or principles instead. The meat of the book is really in its second part, فَالْأَنْوَارَ وَنُورَ الْأَنْوَارَ الْوُّجُودُ On the divine lights, the light of lights, and the basis and order of existence, where he presents his metaphysics of light so characteristic of illuminationist thought. Suravardi's philosophy is one where reality is essentially made up of light, and different grades of light, which is why it is referred to as illuminationist. And we will return to this metaphysics soon. But what Suravadi does in a general sense is to counter the Aristotelian tradition and present a new foundation of authority and knowledge. Aristotle isn't the paradigm of wisdom, but is surpassed by other ancient sages like Plato. Suravardi sees himself as the heir of a wisdom that went back to ancient masters who had been relatively forgotten. He writes himself in the Hekmat al ishraq quote, Even though the first teacher, Aristotle, was very great, profound, and insightful, one ought not exaggerate about him so as to disparage his master, that is Plato. And quote. In all that I have said about the science of lights and that which is and is not based upon it, I have been assisted by those who have traveled the path to God. This science is the very intuition of the inspired and illuminated Plato, the guide and master of philosophy, and of those who came before him from the time of Hermes, the father of philosophers, up to Plato's time, including such mighty pillars of philosophy as Empedocles, Pythagoras, and others. So he traces his authority and teaching to another group of sages, Greek, Egyptian, as well as Indian and Persian, as he refers in other places to Zarathustra and even to the Buddha. But what is this wisdom that these figures embody and which Suhrawardi wants to teach us? One primary aspect is the idea of intuitive knowledge, or what we could call a mystical knowledge. Suhravardi was a Sufi mystic after all, and he makes this tradition a very important part of philosophy. He divides knowledge into two basic kinds, discursive knowledge on the one hand and intuitive knowledge. Discursive knowledge is the kind of knowledge that, according to him, the peripatetics like Ibn Sina are exclusively devoted to. This is conceptual knowledge, any knowledge based on rational deduction. So when you go to school, for example, everything that you learn is discursive or conceptual knowledge. Anything that you can think or grasp through your thoughts is conceptual. Intuitive knowledge, by contrast, is a kind of direct experiential knowledge that is beyond words. You could call it a mystical knowledge. This he clearly takes from the Sufis, who talk about knowledge through kashf, unveiling, and dhauq, tasting. This kind of knowledge is very different from conceptual knowledge, which is based on mental constructions and thinking. If I were to take a knife and stab you, you wouldn't need to deduce any concepts or thoughts to know that it hurts. That is a direct, experienced knowledge of pain. Even better, the Arabic word that the Sufis use, vauq, which means tasting, gives us an even better example. So imagine a person who has never tasted chocolate. You can sit here all day and try to explain to that person what chocolate tastes like, that it's sweet, that it has this or that texture, for example, but he will never truly know what chocolate tastes like until he puts a piece of chocolate in his mouth and actually tastes it for himself. This is vauq, or intuitive knowledge, tasting. And according to the Sufis and Suravardi, this is, to some degree, the only kind of knowledge that we can have truly about God. Suhravardi very much adapts this idea from the Sufis to his own uh, illuminationist philosophy. Um, to him, intuitive knowledge stands alongside discursive knowledge, and indeed even above it. The best kind of knowledge that one can have is that the, the kind that is reached through mystical unveiling or kashf, and not through rational deduction. But in the introduction to the Hikmat al ishraq Suhrawardi makes it clear that both of these kinds of knowledge are useful, and that the most perfected philosopher or sage is the the, the person who can master both of these kinds of knowledge. Quote, the best student is the student of both intuitive philosophy and discursive philosophy. Next is the student of intuitive philosophy, and then the student of discursive philosophy. Thus, one of the things he criticizes people like Ibn Sina for is being too focused and devoted to discursive knowledge and missing the most important things. And indeed, he expects the reader of the Hikmat al-Ashraq to be a mystic who has reached intuitive illumination already, and for anyone who is only interested in discursive knowledge, he refers them to the works of the Peripatetics instead. Quote, the reader of this book must have reached at least the stage in which the divine light has descended upon him, not just once, but regularly. No one else will find any profit in it. And these positions also become clear once we get into the actual philosophy in the book and Sudhavardi's epistemology, or theory of knowledge. As we saw in the dream that he had featuring Aristotle, the latter stated that the key to knowledge is self-consciousness, that one should, quote, return to the self, or the nafs. But well, what does this mean? Well, this is a bridge to one of the central, unique features of Suhravari's thought, which is known as the doctrine of knowledge through presence, or ilm al huduri this is a very complex topic, and scholars aren't always sure themselves exactly how to interpret it, but it is a kind of critique and counter to the peripatetic idea of knowledge held by philosophers like Ibn Sina, where we experience things in the external world through our senses, that information is then translated in our intellect into various universal forms, and our intellect thus knows these universal things. So according to Ibn Sina, when I see a person, my intellect perceives the universal concept of a human being, as well as all the qualities and attributes that this particular person has. But only as universal concepts. Thus I, as an immaterial intellect, can never know that person or anything as a particular object in itself, but only through the universal forms that make it up. This is also why they came to the controversial opinion that God only knows universals and not particulars, since God is an immaterial intellect. But Suhavadi counters this. As Aristotle told him in the dream, the key to knowledge is self-consciousness. We can never know anything external without also being directly aware of ourselves as the experiencer of that thing. So anything that I know always includes a knowledge of myself at the same time. Self-knowledge is immediate, direct, and is always an aspect of any other kind of knowledge. And this becomes important for Suhavardi. Self-knowledge becomes the paradigm for his understanding of knowledge by presence. We don't know ourselves as a bunch of universal concepts, but directly and immediately. So when I know that I am me, I don't need to deduce concepts or ideas or universal, uh, universal characteristics that I know myself by. My knowledge of my own self is a direct knowledge that needs no further explanation. It just is. This is similar to ideas in Indic philosophy as well. And from this, Soravati argues that all knowledge is like this. Since all experiences are experiences of the self, and whatever is directly present to the self, that means that everything we experience, we experience directly by being present with it. We don't grasp abstract concepts or universal from what we experience, we know particular things as they are in themselves, directly through a direct presence with and as an aspect of our self-consciousness. Jari Kaukowa writes, quotes, "...one way of interpreting this is to say that the body and objects of knowledge become present to the subject by entering the field of presence constituted by the subject's awareness of itself." This is a complicated idea, it's, it's uh, it can be confusing, I've certainly been confused and still I'm confused by a lot of what Suhavari is trying to say here, but in essence he's saying that since... Our knowledge of ourself is a direct experience that needs no further explanation. It just is a direct intuitive uh, knowledge that we have. And that every experience of something other than ourselves is also at the same time an experience of ourself experiencing that thing. That means that since our knowledge of ourselves is direct, that means that any experience of any other object in the world is also a direct experience we're not experiencing a universal concept we're not deducing a universal concept from that experience we're actually experiencing that very particular thing because that thing is present to ourself and we know ourselves directly so because we know ourselves directly that means we know the thing that is present to ourself directly as well get it this also means that Surhavadi is a nominalist and a radical one. He rejects the idea of universal concepts completely, they don't exist according to him. There are no universal concepts outside of the mind. The only things that exist are the particular objects as we experience them through their presence to ourselves. Quote, the universal meaning has no reality outside the mind. All of this is obviously connected to his mystical inclinations and the idea of vauk or intuitive knowledge. In a way, Suhravardi is here taking a mystical idea of knowledge and placing it within a philosophical framework. It also allows Suhravardi to solve the problem of God's knowledge of particulars, as it now allows the intellect's direct knowledge of particular things by being present to the knower's knowledge of himself, which God of course has. Still with me? Good, because now we're getting into the most important and central aspect of Surah thought, or at least the most famous aspect of his thought, which is his metaphysics of light. Firstly, it's important to know that the Sheikh al-Shraq also criticizes Ibn Sina here. The latter had very famously made a distinction between essence and existence, between whatness, or mahiya in Arabic, and wujud. In other words, the difference between what a thing is, its essence, and if it is, which is its existence, or wujud, a brilliant move that led the way to many other developments in Islamic philosophy. But Suhravardi disagrees. Indeed, he argues that just because we can make this distinction in our mind, that doesn't really mean it corresponds to actual reality. He continues by arguing that the only thing that is are the essences of things. To him, existence is only a mental concept that doesn't exist. Which is, sounds paradoxical. But what he's saying is that things don't, quote, have existence. They are only essences or lights that are intellected or known, and it is us that arbitrarily apply the concept of existence upon them. This later position became a huge debate, Suravadi's so position becoming known as the primacy of essence or the primacy of quiddity, while those who disagreed, like the later philosopher Mullah Sadra, instead held to the primacy of existence. We will return to this discussion at a later date and in a later episode. But what then is it that exists in the world? Well, there's a reason why uh, Surah is known as the Sheikh al-Shraq, or the Master of Illumination. This is because the central idea behind his thought is that reality is essentially made up of light and darkness. In the second part of the Hikmat al-Ishraq, وَنُورَ وَمُبَادَ وَتَرْتِيبُهَا, or On the Divine lights, the Light of Lights, and the Basis and Order of Existence, he explains this very fascinating and unique teaching that still inspires thinkers to this day. Light, to Surah Vardi, is that which is most apparent and self-manifesting in the world. He says, quote, Anything in existence that requires no definition or explanation is evident. Since there is nothing more evident than light, there is nothing less in need of definition. Light is that which is self-conscious. It always knows itself as well as the other lights. Now, Suravardi isn't thinking about material light here, but a kind of immaterial light. Material light, in fact, is a kind of manifestation of this immaterial light and shares many of its characteristics, but they are not on the same level. Indeed, as John Walbridge points out, Soravardi divides reality into four categories. First, immaterial light, which we have just talked about. Then there's barriers, or substantial darkness, which are bodies and material forms or things. Then there is accidental light, including material light, but also other, quote, self-manifesting accidents. And finally, there are dark accidents. So light, or immaterial light, is essentially that which is alive. It is that which is aware, it's consciousness, if you will. Lights of awareness that are aware of themselves and of other things. Anything in the material world that is quote-unquote alive is so by being connected to a light, like the souls of human beings, for example. Now, Suravardi is clearly showing his influences here, and confirms his indebtedness to some of the ancient figures that he mentioned in the introduction. In particular, he shows his Persian cultural identity by adopting the imagery of light and darkness so common in the Zoroastrian tradition, and indeed names even several divine figures of Zoroastrian mythology in the text as representatives of certain abstract concepts. But he also remains firmly connected to Islam and the Quran, where he finds inspiration and confirmation in places like the famous light verse, which says that God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Because indeed, in his metaphysics of light, Suravardi employs what is essentially a modified version of Neoplatonism. And at the top of this scheme, this hierarchy of lights, lies the first absolute light that is the cause of all other light. The most luminous thing that there is, called the Nur al-Anwar, the light of lights. This, to Suravardi, is God. God is the absolute light and gives birth to all light that emanates from it. From this light of lights then emanates other lights, beginning with a singular proximate light, which then emanates a second light and a third, etc. These lights are distinct from each other in a sense, the light of lights is not the same thing as all the other lights, just like the essence of the sun is not the very same thing as its rays, although they are of course intimately connected at the same time and make up a kind of continuum. Interestingly, one of the key features of light is that it is self-luminous, it illuminates things by its very nature, just like the sun by its very nature always shines. At least, well, it is the sun. This means that it is in the very nature of God as the light of lights to be luminous. In other words, to create things other than itself by emanating or emitting light from itself, like the rays from the sun. Why is this relevant? Well, this means that Suravardi follows most of his philosophical predecessors in affirming the eternity of the world. God must, by his very nature as light, always create it is a necessary aspect of the necessary being as it were so there was no time that god wasn't creating the world especially since he is beyond time in any case we then follow this descending order of lights which give birth to each other and eventually result in the different spheres of the heavens all of which have a dominating light associated with it the lights thus manifest the material universe just like the physical lights illuminate objects and allows us to see them All of the universe depends on the immaterial lights to existentiate them by illuminating them, which in this instance means that they become present to their immaterial awareness. Since the lights are both luminous but also depend on the lights above them, they create accidental dark bodies, or material creation. You might notice that when we put it this way, this scheme and the idea of these lights isn't all that different from the peripatetic concept of intellects, which are also kind of consciousnesses that help create the world and are associated with the spheres, etc. And you would be right, but Surahwardi's lights are also somewhat different and function in different ways. While people like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi imagined that there were 10 different intellects, Suhravardi, in fact, argues that there are many, many more. Thousands upon thousands, perhaps even millions. Also important is that Suhravardi incorporates the platonic world of forms into this scheme, which becomes one instance or level of these lights which stands above the material level. These forms he sometimes calls the archetypes of the talismans. Roxanne Marcotte writes, quote, There are lights of equal strength that differ from others of the same strength by luminous and dark accidents. Some of the lights of this horizontal order being the efficient, not the formal, causes of natural kinds. The function of those platonic forms is analogous to the archetypal forms of Plato, but only insofar as they govern various species whose exemplars they existentiate, rather than being mere universals, such as these species of bodies that move the celestial spheres and being the cosmological efficient causes of all sublunar matters, including human souls these higher lights or dominating lights dominate over the lower lights right down to the lowest level where the immaterial lights are so weak that they can't create anymore, which is our material world here on earth. But this also means that our souls, the souls of human beings or other animals or really anything in the world that is alive in the sense that it is aware of itself and of other things, uh, ultimately descend from this higher world of lights and ultimately from the light of lights itself or god all the lights are interconnected in this way they are all just that lights and they differ only in intensity the light of lights or god is the most luminous and we get more and more dim the further away from this first light of lights we get our own human souls being among the dimmest of lights This idea of the gradation of light as an essential component of reality is an idea that later philosophers like Mullah Sadra would really take and run with as he developed his monistic metaphysical ideas of existence. But with Suravadi himself it isn't all that clear, it it doesn't seem like he is conceiving of this world of lights in a monistic way as a single light that is just... um, just differs in its intensity and gradation in that sense it seems that suravadi means that there are many different lights interconnected lights of course but that they are separated right so that there's there isn't a complete continuum between god and my soul for example they are separated even though they are very strongly interconnected and is made up of the same stuff which is light but my light is significantly dimmer than the sort of eternally luminous light of lights There is some disagreement among scholars about how these things should be understood, especially since so many later interpreters like Mullah Sadra did view this idea in a kind of monistic way. Now remember, one of the defining features of light, as understood by Surahwardi, is that it is self-luminous, that it understands itself, it knows itself, and it also knows other lights directly through their presence to to the, the light of the self. And this also includes God. In other words, we all, as immaterial lights, in terms of our souls, we have and can have a direct knowledge of God, since God is directly present to the light that is ourself. The human side of Suhanavardi's thought thus becomes clear here. We, as humans, are really immaterial lights, and our bodies are not. He doesn't really have a world or body negating attitude on the level of, say, the Gnostics for example, but to Suhavardi, the human being is to turn away from this physical body and instead realise his true self as this material light. By knowing this light, we also know and in a sense become assimilated into all other lights. We experience the lights of the world of forms and we can even know the light of lights itself directly through presence to our self-awareness. This is the illuminationist doctrine in a nutshell. It's very similar to the neoplatonic model of the emanation of the absolute one in various stages until it finally reaches the material world, and then the subsequent goal of climbing back up this kind of ladder of existence until we reach Uh, sort of take off the shackles of the material body and go back to the noetic world of the intellect and maybe even reach uh, unity with the one. So Surabadi's ideas is very similar to this, but he changes the imagery in some ways to this world of lights, which is very poetic and unique, as well as incorporates more clearly mystical uh, features inspired by the Sufis, for example. He also even seemed to support the idea of reincarnation, which is quite unusual for a Muslim thinker, and he takes inspiration in this from thinkers like the Buddha, as well as what he calls other eastern sages. After he was executed in 1191, and from that moment came to be known as Al-Maqtul, or the murdered one, his philosophy continued to be popular, to inspire many of the admirers and followers that would later uh, comment on and take inspiration from his works. And they of course kept developing and interpreting this philosophy of illumination in different ways. We don't actually hear from any of his direct students, the people who were his disciples and studied under him, as they seem to have dispersed and kind of disappeared after he was assassinated. The first stirrings of an actual illuminationist school of philosophy or followers of Suravardi, as such comes in the 13th and 14th centuries, as different writers and philosophers and some degree mystics start to write commentaries on his works, and in particular the Hikmat al-Ishraq. The earliest examples are the philosophers Shahrazuri and the famous polymath Qutbadin Shirazi, both of whom read the Hekmat al ishraq primarily as a philosophical work rather than as a mystical treatise. And indeed, this has been one of the main debates about Suhravarti's legacy in modern scholarship. There's a bit of a rift between those who, on the one hand, want to emphasize him as a mystic, in particular, and thus see all of his peripatetic works as earlier compositions that should be discarded in favor of the mature thought expressed in the Hikmat al ishraq which thus represents his true mystical teachings. This approach is perhaps best represented by the likes of Henri Corban. Others, like John Walbridge, who co-authored one of the major translations of the Hikmet into English, approach him more like the early commentators did, as a philosopher. A philosopher with a strong mystical bent, and in which mysticism played a major role of course, but a philosopher nonetheless who combines both peripatetic, platonic and the mystical doctrine of the Sufis. In any case, there is no denying that Suhravardi is not only one of the most interesting thinkers in all of Islamic history, but also one of the most influential. Especially in the eastern lands of the Islamic world, in places like Persia and India, he was enormously influential. In the revival of philosophical flourishing that took place in Safavid Iran, what is often called the quote School of Isfahan, Surahwardi played a major role. Philosophers there, like Mir Damad, made the philosophy of illumination a central part of his philosophy. And indeed, in the same context appears what is perhaps the most significant philosopher in the Islamic world after Ibn Sina, Sadr Din shirazi more commonly known as Mullah Sadra who, in his transcendent philosophy, would adopt ideas from Suhrawardi, Ibn Arabi and Ibn Sina to create a philosophy that has become a standard to this day, being a major influence on most people or thinkers in the Eastern Islamic world, even people like Ayatollah Khomeini and many others. Thus is the vast legacy of Suravardi. He is a very strange and eccentric figure who stood out even in the context in which he lived. He espoused a philosophy that was daring, unique and controversial to the point that, at least partly for this reason, he was executed. But in spite of this, those ideas, especially as they are expressed in the Hikmat al-Ishraq, or the philosophy of illumination, has been So successful that it inspires and influences major thinkers even to this very day. He may be the murdered one, but Surhavardi has never really died. I'll see you next time.